0: We have a responsibility to do that, to provoke thought within the people of God. But at the end of the day, this matter of Christian giving is something that is going to rest squarely on your conscience. It is something that is a matter between you and the Lord. It is not something that should split a church. It is not something that should divide Christians. If it does, then the focus is in the wrong place. This is Andrew Smith pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. John's County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 1015 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. Please remain standing and take your Bible and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. This morning our New Testament reading, of course, will be our sermon text, which is a long sermon text, two chapters, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9. Let us hear God's Word. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in giving, in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also." I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment, this benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it, so now finish doing it as well, So that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, That there may be fairness, as it is written Whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. But thanks be to God, who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. With him, we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel, and not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us, for we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man." And with him, we are sending our brother whom we have tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. Now it is superfluous. For me to write you about the ministry of the saints, for I know your readiness of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely and he has given to the poor his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God." for His inexpressible gift. This is the word of our blessed God. Please be seated as we ask for the Lord's help this morning. Our Father, this is a lengthy text, Lord, but an important text that reminds us of the very significant contribution of the Christian from their finances to the Lord's work. We pray for direction and wisdom Lord, as we study this text, we pray for open-mindedness and willingness to serve you and obey your word where you call us to obey you in this matter of giving. We pray these things in the blessed and strong name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. Well, as many of you know, we are uh, going through the Gospel of Mark. And uh, last week, we spent uh, some time in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 32, uh, a sermon uh, I entitled, The Time of Restoration, because there are times in the life of a local church in which uh, various topics need to be addressed. Maybe there's issues going on in the culture. Uh, Maybe, um, however, there are issues that people in a particular congregation may raise from time to time. Uh, Sometimes uh, these are rooted more in theology. Um, But other times, there are really practical questions that I believe Scripture gives an answer to, because I believe Scripture gives an answer to most questions. Uh, We may not be able to be certain about everything, but we can be certain about most things, and we can be certain about this, that everything God desires for us to know with certainty, He has made crystal clear in His Word, and we hold to those precious doctrines Um, unwaveringly we we hold to those with great conviction we are willing to fight over those things we should be willing to die over those things but there are other things um, regarding particularly the life of the Christian Christian living that as we search the scriptures out we can find some principles that point in a general direction we can find some degree of certainty about uh, what Most honors the Lord and that sort of thing, but there are some issues where on this side of heaven, we have to be blissfully satisfied in the fact that we may not get the clarity that we want. The topic that I want to address this morning is the topic of Christian giving. Now, some people would call this tithing, and some people have even raised questions about tithing even in In our church, Christ Reformed Community Church, questions such as this, is tithing a moral obligation of a Christian? Well, the answer to that question is from an Old Covenant perspective, yes, that much is clear when we study Mosaic Law and we study the Old Testament. But usually that's not the way the question is asked. Usually the question is being asked from the standpoint of is tithing a moral obligation for Christians today? Because after all, we live in the new covenant. That is an altogether different question because although there are many similarities between the covenants and many similarities and parallels between the old covenant and the new covenant, there are differences and there are contrasts and the scriptures are are not shy about making a difference between the differences between Old Testament saints and New Testament saints. There are differences Um, And as we investigate this matter of tithing, this matter of Christian giving, it's important to understand and just sort of lay this out at the beginning that this is a controversial issue. You can all relax. The elephant in the room has been revealed. Uh, There are going to be differences. Um, in our church differences of opinion differences of conviction on this matter of christian giving is tithing a moral obligation today or not and there are people in this congregation that hold different convictions on those matters and i want to say at the beginning that i think that's okay Um, it is not the unpardonable sin if uh, you don't hold the same position that i hold on this matter you'll still go to heaven when you die, if you're resting in Christ, you will not be kicked out of the church for what your view or conviction on tithing is or is not. And I make a little light of that because uh, it reminds me of a time many years ago when I was a college student and I was training under the ministry of Steve Kreloff, who pastors uh, in Clearwater, Florida. And uh, I took him out to lunch one day, or he took me out to lunch. We, We were hanging out one day and I'll never forget, he told me, he said, uh, Opie, that's what they called me at that church, Lakeside Church. He said, Opie, uh, I want you to listen to these sermons that that I've preached. I, I preached them a few years ago, and they were very controversial sermons. I want you to listen to them and tell me what you think. I said, well, what were the sermons on? And he said, well, they were on the matter of Christian giving. I said, really? And he said, yes. He said that it stirred great controversy in his congregation. And there were many people upset with him because of the position he took. And some people, of course, were on his side. And for him, he thought that was unfortunate. But you could tell that, that he was excited about the fact that uh, it had stirred a little bit of controversy. And I guess there's a little bit of that in every preacher to provoke thought within the people of God. We have a responsibility to do that, to provoke thought within the people of God But at the end of the day, this matter of Christian giving is something that is going to rest squarely on your conscience. It is something that is a matter between you and the Lord. It is not something that should split a church. It is not something that should divide Christians. If it does, then the focus is in the wrong place. Now, with that being said, we read in Acts chapter 20, Luke recording the words of Christ when Christ said it is more blessed to give than to receive. That is an appropriate verse uh, to mention around Christmas time. In fact, in our passage this morning, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we read in verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become Rich. This was exemplified in Christ. This matter of a self giving and we could say sacrificial spirit. It is not just implicit in the gospel that God is a sacrificially giving God, it is explicit in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. God gave his Son, John 3 16, and Jesus, the Son, gave his life all we have as Christians comes to us from God's gift to us through Christ you wouldn't even be here this morning if it wasn't for God's gift to you in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ and we could never repay God for what he has given to us nor should we try to do that but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't give back to him the question then becomes how much do we give back to god well we could never give too much because paul says in romans 12 verses 1 and 2 that we are living sacrifices so that means that every aspect of our lives is to be sacrificial to god additionally there is a such thing as biblical economics let me give you just a couple of verses that that might be helpful and these are very basic verses We read this in Psalm 89, the heavens are yours, the earth also is yours, the world and all that is in it, you have founded them. So everything in this world belongs to God, very basic principle. I'll give you another verse, you're familiar with it, Psalm 24 verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Now, this goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. We affirm uh, what we call the creation mandate. We read in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, that mankind, Adam uh, and Eve, were made as those who would have dominion over God's creation. Now, dominion is not the same thing as ownership. As we just read in Psalm 24 and Psalm 89, that God owns everything. So whatever was given to Adam and whatever is given to us by proxy through Adam is not ownership, but it is stewardship. There is a difference between ownership and stewardship. God has given to us as stewards of his creative world certain responsibilities. Now, you're familiar with the Eighth Commandment. The Bible tells us, thou shalt not steal We're good at pointing out the negativity of the commandments, but sometimes we're not so good at pointing out the positive reinforcement within those commandments. There's always a negative side to a commandment of God and a positive side. The negative side to the eighth commandment is thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not take from someone else what belongs to them or what belongs to them through stewardship, not through ownership because God really owns everything. But nevertheless, you're not to take from them what God has given to them to be a steward over. But the positive side of that command promotes investment of our money, management of our money in a way that honors the Lord. And I'll give you an example of that. It's Ephesians chapter four and verse 28. Paul says this, let the thief no longer steal. So there you have the eighth commandment. But rather let him labor. Here's the positive side. It's not good enough that you just not steal, but you're also to labor doing honest work With your own hands, so that, listen to this, he may have something to share with anyone in need. So it's not good enough, if you want to truly obey the eighth commandment, to just not steal from others. You have an obligation positively to work hard with what God has given you to have enough to be able to share with others in their time of need. Now, this is just basic economic principles. Since God owns everything, what he gives us is only ours to manage we are stewards and in bible times a steward was a manager of one's house you even think about the parable of the talents the talents were given to servants to manage the money of their master a steward managed the property he allocated resources of the owner He would invest the resources of the owner. He would take inventory and stock the home with necessary goods. He would take care of the animals. He would tend the property. And isn't that exactly what Adam did in the Garden of Eden? God gave Adam and Eve this beautiful garden. He said, you don't own it, but you are a steward over it. This is not ownership, but it is stewardship. And Adam tilled the ground. He cultivated the soil. He oversaw the animal kingdom. He named the animals. He grew crops. He harvested crops, all to the glory of God, and as a duty to God to do this in a matter or as a matter of obedience. There were many throughout the Old Testament, godly people who were wealthy. So the issue is not how much money we have. Abraham was wealthy, Isaac was wealthy, Jacob was wealthy, Boaz was wealthy, Solomon was wealthy, Job was wealthy and had everything taken away from him. It's not a sin to have a lot of money, but there were many ungodly people who had an undue love of money. Remember in Joshua chapter 7, Achan had a lust for money that brought God's destruction on his family because during Israel's Israelites' uh, destruction of Jericho, he took uh, a Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver, a wedge of gold. He hid him in his tent, and God judged his family. And then Israel was defeated at Ai because of his lust for money, this undue desire to acquire as much wealth as he could possibly get. God had told Israel, this time you get no spoils of war. And he disobeyed. He had a love and a lust for money. Or think about Delilah's hunger for money that caused her to betray Samson. In Judges chapter 16, she was offered silver by the lords of the Philistines. Perhaps the greatest example is Judas the betrayer, who betrayed our Lord for 30 pieces of silver. He had a love, an undue love and lust for money. And we know that he was stealing from the treasury of the disciples, even though they weren't aware of that. That information was revealed later on. You have even true believers like Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5 who I think were probably true believers and that was the very reason they were judged. They had an unhealthy desire for riches while at the same time wanting to appear as if they were big time donors. God said that is prideful, that is boastful and he chastened them to death by his direct hand because of that sin. So it's not a sin to be wealthy. It's not a sin to have a lot of money. There are many godly people in the Bible who were wealthy and godly. But 1 Timothy 6.10 says that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So there are warnings in Scripture about Biblical economics, what we do with our money, how we view money. Proverbs 23, verses 4 and 5. Do not toil to acquire wealth. That is, don't work just to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist, for when your eyes light on it, that is, on wealth, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. And isn't that true? No matter how much wealth you have, you can't take it with you when you leave heaven. This earth, Not to mention the fact that the love of money causes all sorts of sins. The love of money causes idolatry. It causes dishonesty. It causes thievery. We read in Proverbs 30, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? See, that's what happens when one, someone pursues wealth to no end. They feel full and they feel satisfied and eventually they say, who's the Lord? I don't even remember Him. I don't even know Him. Because they never really did know Him. They have now worshipped money and riches over God. Psalm 52.7 See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches, sought refuge in his own destruction. Not seeking refuge in God, but in riches. That's idolatry. It also leads to dishonesty a love of money. Proverbs 37.21 says, the wicked borrows and does not pay back. Someone who borrows a, a, mo- a bunch of money that they don't have because they want something they shouldn't have is guilty of dishonesty because then when they can't pay it back, after they've promised to pay it back, they've committed the sin of lying. The love of money causes idolatry and dishonesty and it also causes Thievery. You remember in the Bible quite well, Malachi chapter 3 and verse 8. The Bible says, well, man robbed God, yet you are robbing me, but you say, how have we robbed you? And God says, in your tithes and in your offerings. Now, that is a passage of Scripture that I don't think should just be looked over lightly because God accuses his people of robbing him, robbing him specifically in tithes, and offerings speaking about finances speaking about money now i just want to say that there are many good and very godly christians who begin the discussion of christian giving by mentioning tithing there are many godly people that begin the discussion that way and oftentimes they'll use malachi 3 as a proof text that Christians are under a moral obligation to give 10% of their income to the Lord's work. And while I think that they make some good points, I do not believe that tithing is the place to begin the discussion. It's not that I, that I think tithing has no place in the discussion, but I just don't think it has a starting point in the discussion. When we're speaking about moral obligations regarding money, that's put tithing away for a side. And let's talk about some other moral obligations regarding money. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 5. We have a moral obligation to provide for the needs of our house. 1 Timothy 5 verse 8. Paul says, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So when we speak about moral obligation regarding money, here's a moral obligation. If you don't provide for your family, the members of your household specifically, it is a denial of the faith and you're worse than an unbeliever. So we begin there. God has never commanded his people to give what they don't have. And that's why the health, wealth, prosperity gospel is a major travesty. And unfortunately, even in evangelical circles, some preachers can sound like they're health, wealth, gospel preachers, even though they're not, because they overemphasize what you're not giving. But God has said, you have a moral obligation to care for your own family. So we begin there what about this turn with me to Romans chapter 13 and verse 8 and we're just doing a little bit of Bible survey here it's okay we'll get back to the text Romans chapter 13 and verse 8 it says "O no one anything except to love each other for the one who loves has fulfilled the law the Bible teaches a principle here "O no one anything so we have an obligation a more obligation to pay our debts if we are in debt <laughs> we are to pay We're not to owe anybody anything. So we're morally obligated to provide for those in our household. We're morally obligated to pay our debts. We're also morally obligated to save for the future, to invest. Proverbs 21.20 says, Precious treasure and oil are in a wise man's dwelling, but a foolish man devours it. In other words, a wise person sets money aside for the future, but a foolish person has no savings, no investment, and devours it all. They live in the moment. And that's sinful as well. God requires us not only to care for those in our household, to provide for their needs, and to pay our debts, but also to have money left over for ourselves In the future, Proverbs 30 verse 25 gives an illustration. The ants are a people. I like that language because ants aren't really people. But the proverb is comparing ants to people. So it says the ants are a people, not strong, yet they provide their food in the summer. Ants aren't the smartest creatures. Their brain obviously isn't as big as a human brain, yet they understand the importance of saving and providing for their own. Now, I think this is critical to understand in this discussion of Christian giving because health wealth preachers have so abused the concept of a tithe and even going above and beyond a tithe and placing a burden on the shoulders of people that God never placed there. So in speaking about moral obligations, there are moral obligations regarding money, but it has to do with caring for our needs first, saving for the future paying our debts and as i said while i think that tithing as a moral obligation is at a minimum disputable giving to the lord and giving to the church is not disputable and that much comes out very clearly in second corinthians 8 and 9 remember that jesus said in matthew 6 verse 2 not if you give but when you give when you give and in that context, he's speaking about almsgiving or giving to the poor. But anyone will admit that generally speaking, that principle will apply to any sort of giving. Jesus assumes that Christians will give. Not if you give, he says, but when you give. And Paul expects a when sort of giving as well. Notice with me here in 2 Corinthians, just uh, the ways that this text begins in um, chapter 8, verse 5. Paul says this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us, accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, speech, knowledge, earnestness, In our love for you. See that you excel in this act of grace also. Paul had an expectation that they would excel in this act of grace, this, this act of giving. Notice verse 10, and in this matter, I give you my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. Verse 11, so now finish doing it as well so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have again a strong expectation first corinthians 9 or second corinthians 9 verse 3 skip over a page paul says i'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter so that you may be ready as i said you would be paul says i i told others these other brothers you would be ready to give this gift make sure you're ready when they come Verse 5, I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And even verse 7, each one must give, notice that language, must give as he has decided in his own heart, not reluctantly, Or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So the expectation, the encouragement, is clearly there in this text. On the other hand, Paul does not believe in guilt giving. Because if you skip back chapter 8 and verse 8, Paul says, I say this not as a command. So Paul says, I'm not commanding you to give. But yet, he still expects it. There's a little bit of a paradox here. Again, chapter 9 and verse 7. Each one must give, Paul says. But then he says, what does he say? Not reluctantly or under compulsion, but as you've decided in your own heart. So, Paul has the expectation, but he stops short of demanding it. So I want to say this, the tithing dispute may never be resolved this side of heaven. And I'm happy to report to you that it's never been resolved. Even in Reformed circles, there is sharp, sharp disagreement over whether a tithe, that is 10%, is a moral obligation. And what I mean by moral obligation is this, that if you don't do it, you are living in sin. And if you continue not to give 10%, As a pattern of sin, you prove not to be a Christian. That would be a minority position even in Reformed circles. Then you have others who would say the tithe is a good place to start, and it seems to be that's the expectation of Scripture. And if you're not tithing 10%, then maybe you ought to question why you're not willing to tithe 10%. And then you have all sorts of views in between. I don't even really want to deal with that right now because what is clear in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, tithing or no tithing, God expects generous, joyful, cheerful giving. And he not only expects it as he writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but he encourages it. And to me, an encouragement and an expectation of God in his word is equal to a moral obligation. What is moral, what is ethical, is that which is right. So if God commands something or he strongly encourages and expects it, the only conclusion you can come to is that we are morally obligated to obey him and whatever that might mean. Now let's talk a little bit about the context of this Corinthian collection. Here in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Paul is organizing a collection or an offering for from the Greek churches of Achaia and Macedonia. Now, lest you think this is trivial, it took me three or four minutes to read chapters 8 and 9. Paul had a lot to say about it. This is not just some trivial matter to Paul. This was very important to Paul, important enough to include it in sacred scripture, important enough to spend two chapters on this matter of giving. And not only that, but Paul references the same offering in Romans chapter 15. And not only that, but if you skip back to 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 1, Paul says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do, and he says this, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. So there is this weekly standard, it seems of putting money aside among the Lord's people. In short, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 teaches, and please don't miss this, that God glorifying giving is Trinitarian. It goes past the tithe of the Old Testament all the way to the very heart of God. Our giving should be modeled after the Trinity. We could call it triune Giving, that's just something I've made up, but I think it fits, triune giving. And I want to show you this collection that Paul is taking from the saints of Achaia and Macedonia that is going to be given to the saints in Judea, where the capital city of Jerusalem is located, is triune giving. First of all, God the Father's grace was to motivate it. Notice verse 1 of chapter 8. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Paul begins by speaking about the grace of God to say this God the Father's grace must motivate giving. Well, what about the Son? Well, God the Son's sacrifice needs to inform it. Notice verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you by His poverty might what? Become rich. It's amazing how Paul can tie Christian giving to the gospel, and even more particularly to Christ. And saying, look, this is not just a matter of God the Father's grace motivating, but it, motivating it, but it's a matter of God the Son's sacrifice informing it. Christ emulates the sort of giving that should mark our lives. Whatever that means for you in your conscience. God the Father's grace motivates it. God the Son's sacrifice informs it. And God the Holy Spirit's unity is reflected in it. The Holy Spirit caused willingness of Gentile Christians in Achaia and Macedonia to give to Jewish Christians in Jerusalem and the greater province of Judea. Two groups of people that hated one another were brought together by the gospel and these Gentiles who wanted Jews dead sacrificially gave for their needs. Now who was it that revealed the joining together of Jews and Gentiles. Well, listen to these verses. Paul says this, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So Paul says, it is the Holy Spirit that has revealed this mystery of the joining together of Jews and Gentiles. So no doubt it was the Holy Spirit that moved and worked in the hearts of these Gentile saints to give of their hardworking money to these Jewish saints in Jerusalem and I I can show you this if you turn with me to Romans chapter 15 just for a moment this is another passage where Paul mentions this offering because it was important to him Romans chapter 15 and we read beginning in verse 25 at present I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, right? Gentiles are grafted in to the tree of Israel. They ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore... I've completed this and I've delivered it to them. What has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. So, as Paul saw it, verse 27 they owed it to the Jewish saints. This wasn't a matter of this being an option in Paul's mind, it's a matter of the gospel. It was a matter of what the Holy Spirit did through the gospel, which was fused together two people groups who hated one another, Jew and Gentile, into one people that were willing, like their Savior together, to sacrifice for one another. The Holy Spirit that did that. This is triune giving. God the Father's grace motivates our giving. God the Son's sacrifice informs our giving. God the Holy Spirit's unity is reflected in our giving. Now you may ask the question, now what exactly caused this collection to be such a critical matter? I mean, what was going on in Jerusalem? Why did these saints need this money? Well, there are several reasons. Number one, Jewish pilgrims who celebrated Pentecost on the day of Pentecost, who had traveled to Jerusalem, those who had been previously dispersed, converted to the gospel. Peter preaches in Acts chapter 2. And in one day, 3,000 are saved. And we know by Acts chapter 4 that there are 5,000 men, not counting women and children. So Jerusalem now has swelled up in its population from Jews that were previously dispersed who have now converted to the gospel and they don't want to leave Jerusalem. It is their home, They don't want to return to their pagan land. They have converted to the gospel. To return to their pagan land is to return to a pagan land, and it's to return to a synagogue that has rejected Christ. They want to be part of the church. They want to hear the apostles' teaching. They want to be and enjoy the fellowship of the saints. But they have no jobs. They have no homes. They are essentially destitute. There's not enough hotels or inns to keep them. There's not enough family members to house them long-term, so they were poor. Not only that, but there was increased persecution because of the growth of Christianity, and many Jews lost their jobs because they were Christians, and they were being persecuted. And not only that, but even those who still retained their jobs were under a heavy tax burden from Rome. And in addition to that, Acts 11 says there was a great famine in the land. Now, effort was made under the leadership of the apostles to take care of this situation. We read about this in Acts chapter 2, and I know that you're familiar with it, Uh, but the apostles came up with a solution. It says, All who believed were together, had all things in common. They're selling their possessions, belongings, distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness and generous hearts praising God, having favor with all the people. And God was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So they're buying and selling and pulling their money together to help one another out temporarily just to try to stay above water, as it were. And in Acts 4, verse 32, we read that the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Great grace was upon them. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. By the way, that was what became what came before Ananias and Sapphira. They laid money at the apostles' feet and deceived the apostles into thinking they had given all the money from the real estate that they had sold. Acts 4 is clear that there was no one in need for a time. But as more people heard the gospel and were saved in Jerusalem, wanting to hear the teaching of the apostles, more and more people became destitute. There were less jobs, less places to stay, And so Paul says, we need to take a collection for these Christians. Now, there is likely another, even bigger issue going on here. And that's what I want us to think about. The offering that was collected did not merely support the Lord's people. Think about this. More importantly, it supported the Lord's church. And by supporting the Lord's church, They were supporting the very work of the gospel. Let me put it to you this way. What was the Jerusalem church to do? Were they to disband? To disband would have broken the church apart. To disband would have sent them away. Their collective efforts at being a witness for Christ there in Jerusalem would have been blasted apart. What about their witness? What about their imparting of the gospel to the Jews in Jerusalem yet converted? Were they just to give up on the preaching of the gospel and their their witness? Paul wouldn't have that. The Jerusalem church had apostles. The Jerusalem church had elders. They had preachers and teachers who needed to be financially supported and in fact... Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, if you turn back there with me for a brief moment, Paul addresses that very issue. Notice with me in 1 Corinthians 9 verse 1, Paul says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Common sense things. Verse 8, do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? See, Paul predicates the support of apostles and ministers of the gospel on the law of God. And he quotes it. Verse 9, for it's written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It has been written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope, the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. The preacher is like a farmer who is to share in the harvest of the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. In other words, Paul says, I'm not trying to get money from you. This is just a matter of basic needs being met. Verse 13, do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Once again, I don't know why I'm giving you college stories. These are just popping into my head this morning for some weird reason. But when I was in college, I attended a Plymouth Brethren church. And if you know anything about Plymouth Brethren, you know that they are against full-time preachers. They are against, for the most part, paying clergy. And I was rebuked by an elder one time because I was receiving a degree in Bible and had plans to go to seminary and his great fear was that I would become a preacher and be supported by a local church and to him that was the greatest sin that one could ever commit. Did he not have 1 Corinthians 9 in his Bible? Or did he just choose not to read it? Or was he a very strong dispensationalist who said, ah, but that's the law of God in the Old Testament, all that talk about money doesn't apply to New Covenant believers. Probably a combination of both. But the point that Paul is making to the Corinthians, I hope that you can see, I'm going into great detail to make the point, is that as we look at 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, this is not a matter of almsgiving or simply giving to the poor saints in Jerusalem. Don't miss the forest for the trees. Paul's goal is for the proclamation of the gospel to get out. To support the Lord's people in Jerusalem is to support the Lord's church, and to support the Lord's church is to support the propagation and proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is why, beloved, he spends two chapters stopping short of commanding a 10% tithe, Admittedly so, but overwhelmingly encouraging and even expecting a sort of giving that actually goes beyond the tithe because he doesn't even mention a 10% tithe in this passage. At its core, Paul is interested in triune giving. This issue of Christian giving goes back beyond the tithe, all the way to the heart of God and the giving of His Son, the Son and the giving of His life and the Holy Spirit saying, you know what? If God is going to give Himself to His people this way, I'm bringing all of God's people together and I'm going to tell them they must give of themselves to one another in a sacrificial way. And how can the people of God exist apart from the preaching of the gospel going out. How are sinners called into the church? How are sinners saved from their sins? It's what Paul said. How will they hear without a preacher? So I'll say it again. The collection of this offering was less about providing for the poverty of the saints in Jerusalem. That was the specific context. But the ultimate goal was to provide and to sustain the Lord's church so the gospel can continue to be preached. As such, this passage provides, I think, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, a general outline of giving that honors the Lord Jesus. There are 10 basic principles, I think, that are consistent with the rest of the Bible's teaching on financial giving and on biblical economics. Let's at least begin to look at the first one together this morning giving that honors the lord jesus christ first of all is an overflow of the grace of god upon us and the grace of god put into us let me repeat that giving that honors the lord jesus paul's point in verses one through four is an overflow of the grace of god upon us and the grace of god put in us notice verse one we want you to know brothers about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Let's just stop right there. This gift of grace to support the Lord's people, the church, the continuing ministry of the church in Jerusalem, the saints in Judea, Paul's point at the beginning was not a natural thing for those who gave to it. In Macedonia and Achaia, but it was supernatural it was of god's grace so paul at the beginning is not urging guilt giving but grace giving it's the type rooted in god's grace he doesn't begin his appeal by pointing to the grace of the macedonians in northern greece as an example sure It was an act of grace when they gave to this offering. But he doesn't even begin there. He begins with the grace of God. He says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. He's giving credit to God and for what God did through these churches. Christians now he mentions what they did notice verse 2 for in a severe test of affliction their abundance of joy their extreme poverty they overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their on their part for they gave according to their means and I can testify even beyond their means of their own accord begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints so Paul is clear they weren't forced to do this they did it of their own accord but in another sense Notice verse 2, it was an overflow and a wealth of generosity, back to verse 1, because of the grace of God that was among them, the grace of God that was poured into them, the grace of God that came upon them once they converted to the gospel. The order was this way. God gave His grace to them in salvation, as verse 1 says. They gave themselves to the Lord as living sacrifices. The beginning of verse 5 They gave themselves, Paul says, first to the Lord. And then they gave themselves to the other apostles. And then by the will of God, Paul says, to us. That was the order, but it all began with the grace of God. Paul's very simple point is this. Whether it's the saints in northern Greece, that is Macedonia, or it's the saints in southern Greece, which is Achaia, where where Corinth was located in the capital city, Any and all giving is an overflow of the grace of God upon us and put into us. Remember what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1. He speaks about the riches of God's grace that was what? Lavished upon us. You can't take credit for your salvation, but you also can't take credit for your sanctification. It's all rooted in the spiritual blessings of God. The wealth of God's grace through the gospel. God's generosity to you causes you to be who you are. It causes you to want to give back to God as a living sacrifice which will include financial giving, which will include giving to the work of the gospel. But you can't take credit for it. You can't take credit for it. Paul does not give credit the macedonians he says the reason they gave verse one is because of the grace of god that was given to them through the gospel now where am i going with this well you wouldn't know but i'm going to matthew chapter six turn over there just for a moment matthew chapter six i do have a point verse one what does jesus say beware of practicing your righteousness before other people In order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And then what does he say? The first topic he addresses is giving. When you give to the needy, don't sound a trumpet as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets. They may be praised by others, but truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Wow. When talking about this matter of giving, don't be hypocritical. Don't talk about it in a way that puffs yourself up. Don't boast about it. Why? The same reason Paul would not puff up the Macedonians. I mean, he points out the fact they gave out of their poverty and and they did it, they begged, they wanted to do it, but, but Paul says, really, they can't take credit for that. It was the grace of God given among them which promoted that, which fueled that. So that we could say our generosity in giving, however much you give, is not our own doing, it's God's. If we give faithfully, it's only because God's grace has put into us the desire to do that through our conversion to Christ through the gospel. And beloved, I think that's a very, very important point to make. That giving that honors the Lord Jesus is an overflow of God's grace upon us and put into us. That removes the concept of competition. It removes the principle of competing through giving in order to look more spiritual. Paul says, "You want to honor the Lord Jesus, Give glory to God and His grace." Now let me just maybe give another principle regarding giving that honors the Lord Jesus. There's ten of them. We looked at the first one, giving that honors the Lord Jesus is giving that is an overflow of the grace of God upon us and put into us. But secondly, giving that honors the Lord Jesus is also on par with the foundational virtues of Christianity. Notice with me in verses 5 through 7. Paul says, And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace... But as you excel in everything, this is what I want you to focus on, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. And we're not giving a detailed exposition of this passage, but as we hone in on verse 7, Paul continues his appeal for the Corinthians. Notice his sort of language the appeal is that verse 6, they should complete this act of grace. What is the act of grace? The giving of the offering. It was a gracious thing to give, to relieve the saints, the poor saints in Judea. Paul says, make sure you complete it. Complete what you started. And notice he points out the Christian virtues that he's seen among them. He says, as you excel in everything, excel also in this, you've excelled in faith, speech knowledge earnestness and in our love for you see that you excel in this act of grace also in other words paul is saying how could you let up in your giving you have all these other christian virtues faith speech knowledge love i mean you can almost hear paul saying something like this How can you sit on your pocketbooks in the pew with your arms folded saying, I will give everything to God, but I ain't going to give my money. That's basically what Paul is saying. You say you're a virtuous Christian, but you're not willing to give. So he boldly says, the end of verse 7, see that you excel not only in these other virtues, but in this act of grace also in this act of grace also. This act of giving. Virtuous Christian living, it's hard to avoid as incomplete. It's not wholly virtuous. Apart from giving to the Lord's church to perpetuate the gospel ministry. And by the way, these are not random virtues in connection with giving to the Lord's work. Faith is is a major part of that. Trusting the Lord that when we obey and give, He will always honor us. That comes out later in this text. You you sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. You sow bountifully, you'll reap bountifully. That is a principle stolen by the health wealth gospel preachers that they've abused and perverted. But it is a biblical principle if it's rightly understood. Faith is a matter of virtue in this task of giving. What about speech? I I think speech there refers to doctrine that is sound. Paul is saying, you as the Corinthians, you have sound teaching for the most part. Now they were a little off on their understanding of, of the spiritual gifts. But other than that, they were were pretty solid. They had good teachers in their church. They prided themselves in their speech or their doctrine. And it's as if Paul is saying, how can you claim to have this virtue of speech and sound teaching and yet ignore all that the Bible teaches about giving? That's not virtuous. Or what about knowledge? You have all of this knowledge. Paul would tell them, you know, too much knowledge puffs up. Here's an example. You can claim you have all this knowledge, but you know what you need to do to know what's right and to not do it is a double wrong. What about earnestness? That's another virtue listed there. Where was their earnestness? Where was their passion for the Lord's work in the world through the church? Paul says, you know our love for you. We gave ourselves to you. Is it too much to ask that you give yourselves back? All that the Lord has blessed you with? The Corinthian church had many spiritual gifts. Those they're listed uh, back in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, and, and um, in in those chapters, Paul sort of summarizes this, and he says that uh teach is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. One is given to the Spirit, the utterance of wisdom, another utterance of knowledge another faith by the same Spirit, another gifts of healing, another working of miracles, another prophecy. There's all these gifts. If you turn with me for one moment back to uh, Romans chapter 12, this is another text where Paul lists the spiritual gifts. And it's interesting to me that there's one in particular here I want you to see, but in Romans 12, Verse 6, uh, Paul says almost the same sort of thing he says in 1 Corinthians 12. He says that we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us and we are to use them. Now notice he says, these are gifts given to us. If service were to serve, teaching were to teach, one who exhorts in his exhortation, and, and in verse 8, the one who con- contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness, So it seems that there is a particular spiritual gift of generous giving. Paul says, the one who contributes is to do so generously. So there are those gifted with teaching, there to teach. There are those gifted with giving generously, there to give generously. Generously hopefully you're able to detect in that statement that not everyone will give the same amount. All Christians are morally obligated to proclaim the gospel. But not all Christians are morally obligated to pastor a church and preach behind a pulpit. All Christians, if they want to honor the Lord Jesus Christ, will give to Him and hold nothing back. But not all Christians are given the spiritual gift of contributing large sums of money to the church. It's sort of the principle of to whom much is given, much is required. If you're entrusted by God's grace with a vast amount of wealth, with that comes enormous responsibility to use that in a way that honors the Lord and doesn't rob Him of what is rightfully His. The point is that this issue of giving will come down to an issue of your heart before the Lord. Do you have the spiritual gift of giving generously? If you do, you need to obey the Lord. If you don't, it doesn't remove the responsibility to give. There's a third principle and I'll just mention it. Giving that honors the Lord Jesus is giving that is an overflow of the grace of God upon us and put into us. Secondly, it is on par with the foundational virtues of Christianity that Paul lists there. Number three, giving that honors the Lord Jesus is done by considering Christ and His self-giving incarnation. Let me just read the verses to you, verses 8 and 9. Paul says, I say this not as a command. Very interesting but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. You thought that verse was a blessed verse until you read it in the context of what Paul is saying. Put aside the issue of tithing because Paul does here. He says, I can do better than that. What does God require? I'm not going to command you of anything. But do you remember the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich? The question should never be, how little do I have to give? The question should be, How much could I possibly keep back from the Lord for all that he has done for me through the Lord Jesus Christ? Paul puts tithing on the side and he says, let me hold up Christ and his self-giving incarnation. And let me communicate to you that that sort of sacrificial giving is what is to mark any sort of financial giving to the church. You can't measure that. You can't measure the sacrifice of Christ. And so as Paul begins to unpack this, I think what he is telling the church and I think what the Holy Spirit is telling us through the scriptures is that the issue really does not center around the tithe. The issue centers around Christ. How valuable is Christ to you? And that is a question, beloved, that you can only ask yourself and you will give an account to the Lord someday the conclusion you come to well next time we will finish looking at principle three and begin looking at the other basic principles in this text let us pray our lord god we do thank you for this passage of scripture that is helpful to us lord not only because of its depth its length but also because it speaks on a matter that is Highly controversial in many ways, but really ought not be. This is so basic, Lord, to who you are as our God. You are a giving God, a sacrificially giving God. You you sacrificed your only son. Your son sacrificed himself upon the cross willingly. And thus you call your people to do the same. To sacrifice. To be living sacrifices. Even through this act of financial giving. Lord, we thank you that you always meet the needs of your people. You always meet the needs of a church. We thank you even for watching over this church and blessing us with people that are so faithful in giving. Lord, all the glory goes to you, not to them, but we do thank you for them. We thank you for their obedience. And Lord, we pray that we would all be more faithful in giving to you Lord, what you deserve. We could never measure what you deserve and, and we could never pay you back accordingly. But Father, as an act of worship, we had to hold nothing back from you that rightfully belongs to you. And so Lord, we pray that you would help us to do that for your honor and your glory. And we also pray as we partake of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper that we would be reminded of the sacrifice of Christ and the rich blessings of the gospel that come to us the shedding of his blood upon the cross of Calvary. We thank you, Lord. We praise you for your goodness and for your grace and ask your blessing upon us as we partake in communion together. We pray and ask all of these things in the blessed name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I hope this sermon from God's word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.